0: never know, but I trust you to know where Philadelphia is. Hi there, good morning. Uh, Philadelphia, as you all know, was the nearest free city uh, to the slave south at the time, because it was just 40 miles north uh, of the Mason-Dixon line, the boundary that separated Pennsylvania from two slave states on its southern border, uh, Maryland, where I live now, uh, and Virginia, now West Virginia. Uh, and Delaware too, actually, Uh, as Pennsylvania and other northern states had slowly disentangled themselves from race slavery in the 50 years after the American Revolution, that boundary along Pennsylvania's southern border had become ever more important. By 1825, the year that Cornelius Sinclair was kidnapped, that Mason-Dixon line seemed to divide two worlds, separating northern free states from southern slave states. For African Americans, it was the closest thing to a modern international border anywhere in North America. That border mattered. And Philadelphia's proximity to it made Philadelphia's many black residents, whether they were runaways from slavery or whether they were legally free, it made Philadelphia's many black residents attractive targets for professional people snatchers. They preyed on the members of this city's black community relentlessly, putting bullseyes on their backs and putting targets on their heads. The people they stole away could fetch anywhere up to $15,000 in today's money in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Alabama, three of the new territories and states that were rising up along the Gulf Coast at the time. The American settlers swarming into that region said they needed, and they certainly demanded, a bottomless supply of forced labor to cut sugarcane and to pick cotton. They would take almost anyone, including, it seems, children as young as 10-year-old Cornelius. Now planters down there in the Deep South, they may not have liked buying a small percentage, maybe 5% of their slaves, from kidnappers but they had few other options. they had been forced to look to sources within the United States for their labor needs ever since 1808, which is the year that lawmakers here in Washington passed legislation outlawing any further slave imports from Africa or the Caribbean. That 1808 decision was a major turning point in the history of slavery in America. That 1808 decision spurred the growth of an internal or domestic slave trade within the United States. After that 1808 decision, interstate slave traders here in the United States tried to satisfy the Southwestern settlers' demand for black labor by bringing them thousands of American-born enslaved people each year from slave states like Maryland and Virginia But settlers down in the Deep South wanted even more. And the more they were willing to pay, the more tempting and profitable it became for anyone sufficiently cold-blooded to try to kidnap free children like Cornelius from northern cities, smuggle them into the legal supply chain, and then try to sell them in this vast new southwestern slave market. These economic incentives left Philadelphia's large and dynamic black community dangerously exposed. By 1825, the city of Philadelphia had become the center of an inter-regional kidnapping operation. It had become sort of the northern terminus of what we might usefully refer to this morning as the reverse Underground Railroad. Now, this reverse Underground Railroad, and its much better known, very different namesake, the Underground Railroad, they ran in opposite directions, of course. But in some ways, they were mirror images of one another. On the Underground Railroad, the good one, the famous one, the Harriet Tubman one, enslaved people abandoned southern plantations and trekked northward, dreaming of new lives and opportunities in freedom. On this reverse Underground Railroad, free black people vanished from northern cities like Philadelphia and were made to trudge southward to be sold into plantation slavery. On the Underground Railroad, conductors like Harriet Tubman risked their lives and liberty to help black fugitives make these epic journeys of freedom. On the reverse Underground Railroad, The conductors were kidnappers and human traffickers motivated by money. The volume of people, the number of people, the size of the traffic on these two railroads was roughly the same. Each one carried hundreds of black adults and children across state lines each year. Both networks roared to life in the early 19th century to exploit what by then had become major differences in the legal status of slavery in the North and in the South. Both ran on secrecy and relied on small circles of trusted participants, on forged documents, on false identities, and on disguise. Whether traveling from the slave states into the free states, or vice versa from the free states, sucked into the slave states. Black voyagers on both networks had to hide in stables, cellars, and attics. The direction of travel was different, but if you saw on a map the actual routes taken by freedom seekers and by victims of kidnapping like Cornelius Sinclair, you would see that the routes on a map were largely the same. They might even have passed one another on the roads from time to time. Most Americans, I hope, by now know quite a lot about the Underground Railroad, the good one, the famous one. Historians have now spent more than 100 years studying the tactics and strategies that Harriet Tubman and her fellow conductors and station agents used to help freedom seekers escape from slavery. Accounts by former passengers on the Underground Railroad Biographies of former participants have spurred immense interest, not only in Tubman, but also in her many other comrades and collaborators. And again, if you're looking for heroes in American history, the Underground Railroad is a great place to look. Their achievements are starting to saturate popular culture, and that's a wonderful thing. There are walking tours. There are television shows. There's a great museum in Cincinnati. There's another one on the eastern shore of Maryland. uh, And there's this new movie, Harriet, that came out uh, in November. And i like to point out that Harriet d- did really well. Um, Harriet was supposed to make eight million dollars in its first weekend at the US box office. Instead it made 12 million dollars, which meant 50% more people went to see it than were expected. Um, so, it overperformed expectations by 50%. Have you ever overperformed anyone's expectations of you by 50%? <laughs> My wife would tell you I frequently underperformed by 50% or more, but uh, Harriet's doing really well, which is great. And all of these things, are, uh, all of these popular culture representations of uh, Tubman and the Underground Railroad, uh, are dedicated to celebrating, of course, the men and women who heroically created the secret network through which the enslaved could escape to freedom. We know, I think, far less about what I'm calling this morning the reverse Underground Railroad. Its conductors and station agents worked tirelessly to remain untouchable, and the identities of all but a handful of them still remain a mystery 200 years later. Unlike Harriet Tubman, who did actually go on publicity tours and fundraising tours, unlike her, they never gave public lectures about their work, they never went on fundraising tours. Only rarely do their names and their crimes appear in surviving police files or trial transcripts. That low profile, the result of the decades they spent in the shadows, protected by avarice, indifference, and so on. Unlike legal interstate slave traders, who sometimes left their papers to southern colleges and historical societies, the criminal outlaws who built the reverse Underground Railroad left no business records or bundles of private letters for historians like me to read and examine. They did not write memoirs. They did not pose for paintings or photographs. Their homes and warehouses no longer stand. But as I argue in this new book, Stolen, these professional kidnappers left their mark Everywhere. Over the first 50 years of the 19th century, in grand total, they probably stole away tens of thousands of free black people, many of them children, like Cornelius, under the age of 16. Most of those they kidnapped could not read or write and were never heard from again. Their families and friends searched, advertised, and petitioned, They waited in earnest for news, but usually no news came. Free black people in northern cities like Philly had few white allies beyond the meager ranks of a few Quaker-led anti-slavery societies. What's more, white employers openly discriminated against African-American job applicants, while city constables generally ignored people of color's complaints and turned a blind eye to most white-on-black street violence. So when children like Cornelius went missing, their parents could hardly ever persuade mayors or magistrates to get involved. It was rarer still for anyone to be able to gather enough evidence to issue arrest warrants, search property, and interrogate suspects. And even then, experienced members of kidnapping crews knew what to do and what to say, to talk their way out of trouble, and to get back to work. How many people here have heard of um, Twelve Years a Slave? Pretty much everyone, that's excellent. Um, Twelve Years a Slave, as you may remember, is the name of two things. It's the name of a movie, and it's the name of a memoir on which the movie is based. The memoir is written by a guy called Solomon Northup. And Solomon Northup is, of course, a victim of this reverse underground Railroad. He's a legally free person sucked into slavery. But unlike so many other people sucked into slavery by the reverse Underground Railroad, he did later escape from it. How long did it take him? Just making sure, right? Okay. It is early in the morning still. Um, uh, he did eventually escape and then wrote about it, which makes him unusual in two ways. Um, in, in Twelve Years a Slave, uh, his memoir, he explains what happened to him. He explains how a pair of well-dressed White confidence men lured him, and Northup was a well-educated, prosperous musician in his mid-30s, by the way. How they lured him into New York City from his home upstate in 1841. In Manhattan, they wined him, dined him, and drugged him. And the next thing he knew, he'd been sold to an interstate slave trader right here in Washington, D.C., Solomon Northup was then forced onto a slave ship bound for New Orleans, and there he was sold in one of that city's infamous slave marts to a planter who then put him to work in his cane fields. In 2013, an Oscar-winning film based on Northup's extraordinary experience drew overdue attention to his ordeal. But the memoir and the movie offer distorted and perhaps misleading views of who the agents of this reverse underground railroad actually were, who they usually targeted, and how they usually made their money. Because it turns out that in some ways, Solomon Northup's experience was not at all typical of the larger phenomenon. Most kidnappings were committed not by smartly dressed confidence men, but by poorer people who'd never set foot in a fancy bar or restaurant, who'd never wined or dined anyone. These kidnappers rarely approached highly literate, middle-aged men like Northup. They preferred instead to lure away poorly educated children with ruses that could swiftly separate them from their families. Very few of their captives would travel by ship all the way down to New Orleans either. Instead, kidnappers forced most boys and girls they abducted to trek southward on foot in small specialized overland convoys known as coffles after the Arabic word for caravan. Their prisoners rarely ended up in showrooms or on the auction block in New Orleans and were vastly more likely to be sold off in ones and twos in furtive all-cash deals to hard-up planters in the interior of Mississippi and the interior of Alabama, the sort of people who wanted to buy more slaves but couldn't afford to pay big city New Orleans slave prices. What I've just described as being more typical is almost exactly what happened to Cornelius Sinclair, one of the five central figures in my new book, Stolen. In August 1825, Cornelius and four other boys living in Philadelphia fell into the hands of 19th century America's most fearsome gang of kidnappers. Their captors hustled them onto a small ship just outside the city. They warehoused them for a while in a pair of safe houses on the Delmarva Peninsula, just south of Pennsylvania. Then they marched them halfway across the continent to the Deep South, where they tried to sell all five boys as slaves. Now, I'm not going to say much more today about that journey into the Deep South, um, or what happened afterwards, though if you take a look at my book's subtitle, I'll read it to you, Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Uh, There's a very unusual second act to this particular story. uh, And uh, unfortunately, the subtitle is ever so slightly misleading because not all five of the boys do actually make an Astonishing Odyssey home, but many of them do. Uh, That Astonishing Odyssey home is genuinely astonishing. (laughs) It astonished them. It astonished me. but I'm not gonna tell you exactly how it happened or why it happened. I'm hoping some of you will take a look at the book instead. (laughs) All I will say here that that what did happen next to Cornelius Sinclair and to the four other boys who met for the first time in the belly of that ship outside Philly, it would involve two murders, three exhumations of dead bodies, an escape, a recapture, a suicide, a race riot, a lawsuit, the nation's first most wanted list, and America's largest manhunt so far. Instead of telling you exactly what happened, (laughs) let me just quickly tell you that the full story of what did happen to Cornelius Sinclair and the four other boys who went missing from Philly in 1825 has never before been told, and for good reason. Because Cornelius was a child at the time he went missing. He came from a hard-up family that was not the sort to leave behind many traces in libraries and archives. And that's a problem, right? Because historians need sources. We need lots of sources to reconstruct past lives in ways that are fair and true. The stories and struggles of the many people who do not leave rich troves of papers, diaries, or memoirs often remain unstudied and untold as a result of that source problem. So to reconstruct the basic outline of what did happen to Cornelius uh, on his journey along the reverse Underground Railroad, I began with two sources we already knew about. One was a small packet of letters written to or from the mayor of Philadelphia. The second was coverage of Cornelius's case in a single Philadelphia anti-slavery magazine. Um, But on their own, these two sources turn out to be too thin, too few, too weak, too incomplete to sustain a whole reconstruction. So I've had to go looking elsewhere, digging around in any archive I could find for scraps of information that, when stitched together, can start to flesh this all out. There has been a lot of failure and a lot of wasted effort along the way, a lot of days spent finding nothing at all, which is a very common experience for historians. But ultimately, I think it's been worth it. Over six years of research for this book, I've unearthed more than 100 new sources, more than 100 treasures about this case, buried within 35 archives in 14 states and the District of Columbia right here. Um, I'll just highlight three of them super quick. One was the handwritten notes of a trial that took place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, a trial which would decide Cornelius's fate for the rest of his life. I found a pair of letters in which one of his kidnappers pleaded his innocence, which was not true. And I found a missing persons ad, written by Cornelius' heart-struck father, three days after his son uh, disappears. It's on page eight. I'm going to briefly read it. It says, boy lost. My son, Cornelius Sinclair, a colored boy about 11 years old, Left his friends yesterday, and as he had no cause and had never before absented himself, I fear he's been seduced away by some evil minded person. My son is a very dark, mixed race lad, pretty stout built, thin, long fingers. His eyes are weak, his left eye is smaller than his right. Any person hearing of our son will confer a favor on his afflicted parents by giving information to my employer at this address. Before I seek your questions and wrap up, let me just say a couple of minutes of remarks about why I think learning about America's reverse Underground Railroad is important and why Cornelius Sinclair's particular experience as a rider on it is worth your time. To begin with, I would argue forcefully then as now that families belong together. And thus, any story about free children ripped from their families and swallowed up by slavery in this case is a story worth telling for its own sake. But the remarkable ordeal that Cornelius and his four fellow captives endured also demands our attention for many other reasons. For one thing, it serves as a pointed reminder that child snatching was heartbreakingly frequent and that black freedom in northern towns and cities was achingly fragile in the decades before the Civil War. It demonstrates, too, the important role that this grotesque trade in kidnapped free people played in accelerating the spread of Southern slavery into the Deep South over this period. Now, as I said, I'm not going to preview the book's ending. I'm not going to tell you exactly what happened to Cornelius after he was kidnapped and trafficked into Alabama. But I will drop a few hints right here. I will say here that the dogged efforts of all those involved in trying to save him and the four other boys from the horrors of slavery in the Southwest would have profound consequences. The rescue efforts of parents and their allies and the aftermath of their campaign would radicalize black communities across the free states, emboldening African-Americans to embrace Violence in the cause of self-defense and in the cause of mutual protection as never before their efforts would reshape the rest of the american anti-slavery movement as well by encouraging white abolitionists to focus the public's attention on the suffering of black families forcibly separated by slavery, an important new motif and theme in anti-slavery writing which proves to be incredibly powerful and important. But most immediately, outrage over the abduction of these five boys would force lawmakers in Pennsylvania to pass tough new anti-kidnapping measures. And those laws would enrage southern slaveholders and set in motion a chain of retaliations that culminated in the passage through Congress of something all of us in this room have heard of, which is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, a pro-slavery abomination that put this country on a collision course with civil war. Cornelius Sinclair's experience as a rider on this reverse Underground Railroad was the result of the confluence of massive economic and political forces. And what happened to him, and what he did next, would usher in a new chapter in the history of slavery and freedom in the United States. But that lasting legacy must not be allowed to obscure the urgent and elemental stakes of his particular story. A 10-year-old boy and four other free children were dragged into slavery in 1825. They would have to fight like hell to try to escape. Thanks very much indeed. I see a few hands. Let's uh, have a few questions, for Mike. Yes. Uh, all the way back, So yes. Yeah, thank you for the social occasion of on the topic of slavery. Every nation had that experience of slavery, the Jews were slavery in Egypt. They decided to lay themselves in Egypt. And here in the United States, Actually, black women, the black people's slave freedom itself. However, the slavery is still present, and right now, here in the United States, uh, they kidnap youth, women who sex slavery from the south of the border. There's uh, human trafficking or slavery right here, and it seems to be the issue of slavery is called the broke tolerance even to the 21st century. What can we do to avoid this problem? What can we do to avoid this problem? So the comment was that slavery is not dead and buried. You're exactly right. Human trafficking and slavery is a modern day phenomenon, just as much as it's an historical phenomenon. And we in this country, and I say we, I have a British accent, but I'm naturalized US citizen, very proud to live here. Uh, we in this uh, country tend to think that slavery is behind us, or that we, we did our job in the Civil War, with all the blood and treasure spilled in that war. And that's a half-truth at best, because in this world today, in this world, there are more than 40 million people enslaved today. Within the United States, there are more than 100,000 people enslaved today. Many of them are in California uh, on massive agro-picking um, um, fruits and vegetables on massive agro-corporations uh, uh, places. Uh, many of them are in Florida, in New York, involved in uh, sex work. Uh, and many of them are involved in uh, enslaved domestic work in Washington DC, in New York, uh, protected by uh, diplomatic immunity by the people that, uh, own, uh, that, that basically uh, own them. Uh, what can we do? We can educate ourselves first and foremost, right? I'll point you to three websites or three organizations if you do want to learn more about this. Who are doing the work that abolitionists did before the Civil War. Those groups are called Free the Slaves. Uh, Anti-Slavery International, and the Polaris Project. Polaris is the North Star, which Frederick Douglass would have recognized. Uh, so take a look at those websites and educate yourself, because there's a lot that we can all do, myself included, uh, to move this ball forward and eradicate slavery in our lifetimes. Carolyn? I was just wondering how you came upon the story of Cornelius, and then when you did start looking into it, what was the point that you said there's more to tell you Oh, Rick, we're recording. So. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, yes. Uh, so the question was, how did I come to this uh, uh, story? Uh, I came to it through a back window, uh, which is to say I came across it through a minor character who appears for about 10 pages in this book, and it's one of the kidnappers. The kidnappers were part of a gang, as I've mentioned. One of the gang's leaders was a 65-year-old white woman who lived in Delaware whose name was Patty Cannon. Um, who people who live out there in Delaware today would still recognize that de- name, though on this side of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge no one's ever heard of her. Because uh, <laughs> the Eastern is a weird place. Um, so I came across this story because I used to, I was previously writing a book about suicide, and Patty Cannon may or may not have committed suicide at the end of her life. Uh, She was certainly in jail when she died, awaiting trial on three counts of murder, and it's not clear how she died in prison. So I came across uh, Patty Cannon through my previous work, and I dug into her life and could not believe uh, what she had been involved in. Because when I came across her story in 2011, uh, I knew almost nothing uh, about the phenomenon of kidnapping um, adults, and especially children. From free northern places into southern slavery. I was dimly aware of Solomon Northup's memoir, though in 2011 I had not read it. The movie from 2013 had not come out. If I'd given this any thought I would have told you um, that people like Northup were a tiny exception, that this didn't happen very often. And I was wrong about that, it turns out. Six years of research turned up, as I've said, hundreds, thousands of cases when free adults and children were kidnapped uh, into slavery. Uh, And I've chosen this story to tell as a representation of the larger phenomenon because of all the things that happen which are unusual about this case. The Astonishing Odyssey home mentioned in the subtitle of my book is not common to most of these cases of kidnapping, but because it did happen for some of the boys in this case, it generated a body of sources that illuminate the larger experience of being kidnapped into slavery, which from a child's perspective, we do not normally get and do not normally possess. Those accounts do not exist or survive. But in this case, because of what did happen, they do. So this was my entry point into this much larger phenomenon. And one quick thing I'll say in in addition is that um, the parents are also major major characters in this book. The parents of the five boys uh, kidnapped. And that was important to me because uh, when I started this project, my wife and I were trying to get pregnant. Uh, We now have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Happy, healthy, and completely bonkers. Um, And, you know, The thought that my children could ever be ripped away from me and there's nothing I could do to stop this, that has always ripped at me in a sort of primal, elemental uh, way. So I couldn't look away from this story once I got down there. And I hope readers will take a look too. Oops, we're being recorded. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Why do you think there was such a failure of the rule of law? with respect to Pennsylvania in particular was a state's rights versus a federal issue and the fact that a state, Pennsylvania, which was known for being where the Underground Railroad would bring people in, would equally have such an unlawful activity taking place. It's a great question. It requires a longer answer than I can give here. So I'll just take a narrow part of it. Why doesn't the state of Pennsylvania stop this consistently? Because the state of Pennsylvania is basically a free state. Philadelphia is basically a free city by 1825. Why don't they just stop this? And the answer is because um, having gradually abolished slavery, um, most white Pennsylvanians think their job is done, number one. And having abolished slavery is not the same thing as fighting for equal rights and equal justice, something we can all in this room acknowledge uh, today, right? The same is true among the white population of Pennsylvania in the 1820s, right? Um, They uh, are happy to have done their part to have eliminated bondage, human bondage within their state, but that does not mean they want to give jobs. Um, to black job applicants, it does not mean they want um, uh, black people to be their neighbors. Uh, it does not mean they want uh, their daughters uh, to marry young young black men right this actually remains a deeply racially divided state and a deeply racially divided um, city. Historians uh, who've worked on Pennsylvania in the 1820s uh, intensively uh, talk, using an historical word in quotation marks, of negrophobia uh, in the 1820s among the white population. So it's one thing to have abolished slavery, another thing to be fighting for equal justice and representation. And in this period of American history, in this place and in this time, there aren't enough white Pennsylvanians willing to do that work they elect people who represent them who hold the same views. So there is one mayor in this book who actually does something, and he is wholly unusual in being an elected official who does something in Pennsylvania at this time. It's a longer answer I could give. Um, Yes, sir? Yes. Um, First, the paradox of Philadelphia being the green market for this, as opposed to Baltimore, that David Blight says had the largest number of free blacks yeah. during this period. Yeah. And secondly, what legal you, you mentioned that people were petitioned, petition whom or what, given that the rights to petition in court uh, for blacks uh, was virtually non-existent. Right, right. Uh, Two quick questions. I'll try to give brief answers. Um, uh, Whether they have the right to do something does not stop people from doing it in all sorts of contexts. We can find lots of black petitioners in all sorts of contexts uh, after 1776 for the next 50 years, petitioning different state legislators about different uh, things, and this is no different. There are free black petitioners like Richard Allen, the famous black minister from um, Philadelphia, uh, petitioning about how common kidnapping is and how something must be done. Do those petitions get answered or responded to. No, they get basically tabled or ignored. And in Congress in Washington, we know about the gag rule of 1835, whether they agree not to even talk about it. Um, So that's part of it. I focused on Philadelphia in my remarks today, but I do not want to leave you with the impression that kidnapping of free black adults and children was confined solely to that city. That is wrong. Uh, That's one of the things I learned in the course of this book. And in fact, um, as David Blight, I think, would tell you if you pushed him, there's just as much kidnapping of free black adults and children from anywhere else. There's a large free black community. So that means Baltimore. It also means New York. It means Cincinnati. It means Pittsburgh. It means York, Pennsylvania. It means Boston, so far north. But all you need is a port and a ship, and you're away. And that's what happens. Yes, ma'am? Yes. Um, it seems to me that you described quite a, an, an effective economic model for those who stole these children. Right. But you referred to the ones who stole children as being uh, not very well, uh, not being people of means, Correct. not being Correct. Lord, But they had a machine in place. So is anybody investigating that topic, the topic of, this, of, the, of the traders and who they were and what <coughs> kind of organization was behind all of that. Uh, they, there must have been people who made a lot of money of So yes, I don't want to overstate this. Uh, no one is becoming the modern equivalent of a, of a millionaire or multimillionaire doing this work because it is incredibly... Risky, and it's hard to recruit people to join you uh, in doing this work. The most successful, if I can use that word in quotation marks, because obviously this is grotesque work, um, the most successful kidnapping operations are family businesses uh, where you can trust the people who are related to you by blood or by marriage. And that is true for the gang at the center of this particular story. Uh, This is the most well-known and fearsome gang of kidnappers, the gang that steals these five boys. Uh, They're called, at the time and now, the Cannon-Johnson Gang. Cannon after Patty Cannon, who I mentioned earlier on, and Johnson after her son-in-law, Joseph Johnson. They're a team. They employ or they... uh, Uh, associate with about 12 or 15 other people, the vast majority of whom are related to them, and the small number of others they pay handsomely to make sure they are loyal. Um, And, you know, um, the law enforcement mechanisms are under a constant stress test. Uh, I've said that there's not much responsiveness from elected officials, but that doesn't stop petitioners and members of the free black community from doing everything they can to lobby to get something done every, every time a child uh, goes missing. So there's that constant push and pull between apathy and indifference and activism and resistance from members of the free black community. And that does sometimes result in arrests and convictions, which again narrows um, the base of people willing to continue doing this work rather than end up in prison, right? So with any criminal enterprise, there are real risks involved which limit them from doing everything out in the open and becoming billionaires. Though the financial incentives are very great as you pointed out. I think our time is almost up, so I'm gonna take one more question from the back. You no know, one intended I've been White Pennsylvania. I don't know what those people do up there, but they celebrate Christmas with the best I've ever seen in my life. We are very festive Christmas. I didn't I didn't catch the first part, I'm sorry. I've been a White Deer Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. They're the most festive people I've ever seen worship Christmas with the lights in the ornaments. I see. Do we have I, one more question? I can take line? one more on uh, yes, right here. Is there a connection with the Ku Klux uh, Klan? The connection, of course, is indirect, right? Because the Klan comes into into being closer to the era of the Civil War and Reconstruction immediately uh, thereafter. But if we think of the Klan in terms of intimidating and terrifying free black communities to prevent them from expressing their full uh, claims to equal citizenship and rights, then kidnappers, though they have economic motives to do so, achieve many of the same effects, right? Uh, They make uh, members of the free black community, whether it's in Baltimore or in Philadelphia, walk on eggshells. Imagine being a black parent uh, in Philadelphia in the 1820s, right? Uh, You know there are kidnappers walking abroad, uh, and you know your children need to get to school or to get to work because this is the 1820s. How can you be safe that they're going to get there? How can you be safe in the knowledge they're going to get there? You are drilling your own children with these messages about how to stay safe, how to read body language, how not to trust uh, strangers. That pattern of intimidation, which is not the purpose of kidnapping, but it's a byproduct uh, thereof, is is eerily similar um, to what the Klan did uh, later in American uh, history. This is a continuing thread in American history Uh, Unfortunately, if we think about the talk that black parents often have to have with their children uh, regarding the police today, it's not a world away, unfortunately, right? American history moves forward ever so slowly, I think. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention, I really appreciate it.